0: If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn it to 1 Kings. We'll be there in a bit. 1 Kings 18. If you picked up one of the Bibles in the back, I think the page number will be 206. 206. So one of the hobbies that I've picked up over time, and it really, when I say hobby, it's like totally amateur hour, is I enjoy cooking. Um, What I've learned about that that whole process is that it only takes you a time or two of doing something poorly to recognize like it kind of matters how you put the ingredients in if you don't just want to make a stew every time it kind of makes how, how you arrange things the way you especially in food prep the way you prepare things and get them ready uh, the order matters and the sequence matters and sometimes you want the finished product but you, you don't think about the order as carefully as you need to. The prize is the final dish, but there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. Our God is the God of order, and it struck me this week as I was reading and preparing for the message today from 1st Kings 18. How often God takes a good amount of time to prepare his people. So often we want God to work and we want him to work immediately, quickly. But often God is taking time to develop his people to develop situations and circumstances. When, when God prepares a woman or a man and orchestrates circumstances, when the fullness of time comes, make no mistake, he acts decisively. But sometimes the preparation takes a while. I was thinking about that, especially uh, with 1 Kings, because 1 Kings is written that way, especially the story of uh, Elijah. When when you read, if you were to go home this afternoon and read just chapter 14 and chapter 15 and chapter 16 of this book, you would say, okay, God, when are you going to deal with this? Because this is a a real mess. When are you going to deal with this situation? You get the real clear sense that it is not done as it is in heaven in those chapters, How will God act? But then in chapter 17, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, Elijah, the character that we've been studying the last several weeks, burst onto the scene. And then we're prepared to to see God act then. But even then, God is going to prepare Elijah, and he's going to prepare a widow and her son, and he's going to prepare the whole nation of Israel for his work. So I want to read a little bit deeper into that preparation today. If you have your Bibles, 1 Kings 18, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. First Kings 18, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. It says this in Scripture. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. And the famine was severe in Samaria. Did you notice there in verse 1, Elijah is a man directed by the word of the Lord. He has this on his mind. What does God have to say? And when God has to say something, Elijah is quick to do that. Whatever God has to say, he's motivated and energized by the word of the Lord. And what does God have to say? That's especially relevant to where the nation was. And so I want to see kind of, as we look back a little bit, as uh, where, where we are in the story, what have we seen so far? Well, if I were to put some markers of that particular time, I think one of the markers I would say is during this time period, we have wicked people in power. So as you read the story of Elijah that we've been tracking with the last few weeks, we have the story of wicked people in power. And before we introduce some of this cast of characters that are the wicked people in power, let's just remember the proverb, Proverb 29, 2, that says, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. When the righteous increase, or, or some translations even say, when the righteous are in authority, when they flourish, people rejoice, but... When you have wicked leaders, the people just groan. So who are some of the wicked leaders, the wicked people in power? One of them is King Ahab. And sometimes it's hard to remember like all the kings and all the geography and history of the Bible. The King Ahab, there's been a civil war in Israel and the, the nation has split and King Ahab is ruling over the northern part of the kingdom. Scripture says that he holds this particular distinction. No one outdoes him in wickedness. He, he's topping the charts for that particular characteristic. So wicked people are in power. He's often pictured a little bit as... Uh, helpless person in some ways. I mean, he's the king, so it's a weird picture, but but he doesn't get his way at times and he throws tantrums. He's, a, he's an interesting character in scripture, but he's a, an evil one that doesn't seem to be that powerful except for the fact that he leads the nation in wickedness. Married to King Ahab is Queen Jezebel. And so all the like all the stigma attached to that name comes from this particular individual. Jezebel, it seems like her marriage with Ahab is more for political reasons, kind of an alliance so their countries could benefit, a a mutual trade agreement. seems like much more of that than necessarily romance. And Jezebel has targeted, has targeted the people of God, particularly the leaders of the people of God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. She wants to, exterminate them. She wants to kill all of them. She's also brought in another another God, another false God, into the life of the nation of Israel, a false God named Baal, and Ahab doesn't do anything to address it. And so this this reminds us not only are are there wicked people in power, but it is an idol filled world. So if you were to live in that time period, if I were to live in that time period, we would, it, it would be an idol-filled world, although I'm not sure that anyone would have necessarily put it that way. For many, they might have just decided, you just go along to get along. I don't, I don't necessarily see any idols here. I don't, I don't, I, I'm not really paying attention to that. And sometimes our spiritual senses, this happens to us at times if we don't watch it, our spiritual senses get so dull that we can't recognize that there are things that are competitors to the one true God in our lives. Sometimes it's as if, like, our glasses get fogged up and we can't quite see, spiritually speaking, what's really going on in our heart and, and in our world, maybe maybe in the lives of Christians around us. We just become too accustomed to living with this. I'm not sure anybody would have said, yeah, our, our whole nation has a problem with worshiping idols. I don't think they would have said that, But but God's people are always are always told to give God total allegiance. 100%. That's what he commanded. That's the first command, isn't it? Have no other gods before me. And actually, the reason why God can make that sort of demand, which is a huge demand, no other gods before him, the reason why he can make that demand is because he's the God who has written all of our stories. He's the God who created us. He's the God who made us. And even before God gives that command in Exodus 20 to have no other gods before him, he says, I am the Lord God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who who has shown you grace. And because of this, no other gods before me. Reminds me of the words of Jesus, that no one can serve two masters. And yet the people of God have have brought in Baal and they brought in uh, an Asherah pole and they've, they've decided they can actually worship lots of gods. They can have many competitors, many rivals to the one true God. But in God's mind, mark this down, in God's mind, divided allegiance is no allegiance at all. A divided allegiance is no allegiance at all. And the fact that you may not recognize and I may not recognize instantly all the competitors to God, the fact that I may not recognize that my materialism or my love of pleasure or your pride or your greed or sex or power have become so important to you, the fact that you may not recognize it doesn't mean that your heart's not divided. James says it this way, a a, a double-minded A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And even from Deuteronomy and Jesus echoes this very same command that we should love the Lord our God and then the 100% words start flowing out. You should love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. 100% words. It's an idol-filled world. And that divided allegiance has meant there's really no allegiance to God. It's not only an idol filled world, it's also a time of desperation. These are desperate times. Desperate times because, as we read a moment ago, there had not been rain. Not been rain for three years. Sometimes it's hard to live in, like, kind of put our mindset back into an agrarian, kind of agriculture mindset. But if rain doesn't come for three years, certainly back in that time with, without the technology we might enjoy in that region in the world, it's an issue. It becomes very, very desperate. And specifically, there hadn't been rain, not, not just because of like a quirk of the jet stream for a few years. No, the reason why there hadn't been rain is because Elijah had come on the scene and announced that God was, God was sending this lack of rain, this famine, this drought as, as a result of Israel's sin. He had prophesied as directed by God that there would be no rain until he said so and now it even says there's a severe famine in the northern kingdom in the capital there in Samaria which would hit most much closer to home. So it says in 1 Kings 18, when this goes on, many days, many days. I would say it's a desperate time. It's a tense time. People are a little bit on edge. I mean, all it takes is to let the economy start struggling. People get a little bit Uh, antsy, much more frustrated. Maybe there were people, maybe there were good people. Maybe there were people that had families and wanted to care for their kids and everything else, asking the kind of question like, God, what are you doing? What are you doing to the entire nation? Why is this lasting so long? What what is God seeking to do?" do? I don't always know the answer to why God does what he does. I think in this case, we get, a, we get a glimpse into exactly why God is doing this, why God has caused the famine for three years. I think it's to push people to make the choice of being allied with him, showing their allegiance to him. Sometimes we aren't really confronted with where we are spiritually. Sometimes we can live with our, our senses spiritually like being dull, so we can sin and not feel that, that convicted about it. We can let our, our mind go to places we don't need to go. We can quit fighting against those things that war against our own soul. We can, we can get spiritually dense and, and not pay attention to what God's doing. And sometimes we're so comfortable we have to have some pretty desperate times to really appreciate our need to choose. Sometimes I wonder if Christians think or if churches think that we can live kind of having our cake and, and, and eat it too. If we, can, if we think we can live, yeah, with God, you know, pretty much pleased with us and and the culture really liking us. And if we can live just a long time like that, that everybody, no, we, we, don't, we don't hurt anybody's feelings. Nobody ever gets mad at us and we, we make God happy in everything. And I think sometimes we, we think... I, I think I can do it. I think i found a third way where I don't have to choose between the two. And then it seems like God will go right down the fence post and just knock us off one way or the other. You'll make a choice. You'll either show your allegiance to God or you won't. God's prepared his people day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year now. Are you ready to choose? Are you ready to choose between Baal and Asherah and kind of this this thing you think is working for you, are you ready to choose between that and between worshiping me as your only... God. God's prepared his people. Elijah's given the green light. Go into Ahab's presence. Verse 1 and 2. So Elijah goes to show himself to Ahab. And, and we get the we have the anticipation like, okay, finally it's going to be a time of confrontation. God's going to put it to his people. And there's going to be mercy for those who turn back to God. And there's going to be judgment for those who rebel or just choose to ignore. Ah, I'm not going to make a decision at this time. We get like, like the motor seems to be firing up. We're ready to go. Ahab and Elijah are going to meet and there's going to be this confrontation and and then, and then we're surprised. Because Scripture takes one of these divinely directed detours. I often you, know, you you think the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, and yet God will wander us around sometimes on divinely directed detours. As a matter of fact, we're introduced to a new character named Obadiah, and as I've read the story, we wouldn't have to have him in the story. I and mean, we could take the, the next several verses and lift them out and the story would still make sense. Ahab and Elijah would have a confrontation. But God chose to put this man named Obadiah in the Bible so that we might hear something. And there's something God had for Obadiah and there's something he wanted to show Elijah. And I think there's something for our own warning and our own instruction, and our own insight and learning. And so I want us to read about this person named Obadiah. This is not the same person that has a, a book named after them later. But, it, but, but let's read about him in verse 3. So Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Which household? Ahab's household. Now, Ahab feared the Lord, or now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord... A polite way of saying she killed them. When Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred of the prophets and and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. So from these verses, what do we learn about Obadiah? One thing we learn is that he has this position of authority. He's over the household of Ahab. And that's going to be very significant. Obadiah will have some access to resources because he's like right next to the crown, right next to the throne. Because of that, he's going to have access to bread and water, which I would imagine were pretty valuable commodities at that time during a famine, during a drought. So God has just put this man named Obadiah right in the center of influence and power. God does this at times, doesn't he? He... If you, if you know Bible stories, God puts Joseph right in the center of power of Egypt. Comes prime minister, second to, to Pharaoh. And God takes Daniel and puts him at the center of Babylon, center of power. Right near the king, he has the kings ear. He takes three Hebrew children and does the same thing in Babylon. He takes Nehemiah and does that in Persia. He puts Esther close in, in, in Persia as well. He has a a young girl that speaks up for her to her master, who's a Syrian general. I mean, God does this pretty regularly. God has people of influence and people of power, and He has His people close by to have voices. So Ob- Obadiah does have a position of authority, but interestingly, he also has a higher allegiance than that to King Ahab. It says in scripture, in verse 3, that he fears the Lord. He fears the Lord greatly. And this this puts him at risk. This means he's vulnerable. This means that when he, when he has the chance to act, he does act. And like take some prophets out of the way so that he can hide them, so that he can take care of them, so he can honor the Lord by this one thing he does. When I read about When I read about Obadiah, I I think, okay, so he has a position of influence with King Ahab and he fears the Lord greatly. And it reminds me of this. It reminds me that Obadiah had a complicated life and that God sometimes gives his people difficult missions. He puts us in some difficult places. I mean, God put Obadiah here. But how many times do you think Obadiah's conscience would have been grieved by what he saw with Jezebel? Jezebel. And Ahab. And he watches another another statue come in that's a false god and another pole that people are bowing down to. How many times? How many times do you think he should he had to ask the question do I speak up here? Am I compromising by not saying anything? I have a position of influence. I'm I'm close to power. Should I should I say something or or would that make things worse? If I'm out of the picture, does that mean more of the prophets of the Lord are going to be killed? Is this just passive assent, or am I being wise here with where God has put me? Is he courageous, or is he, is he a coward? So here's the fact. It's always right to do right. It's always right to do right. But sometimes it's not that easy to discern what is right and what is the wisest thing in a particular situation. And some of you live there right now. Some of you, your work presses on you in this very way. Like there, there's ethical things where it seems like it doesn't seem so black and white and it seems like you're in a gray area and you have a position of influence and you want to use that well. But then you watch this, you watch that dynamic, and it, and it grieves you, and you're wondering, like, what? what should I do here? What would be courageous? What, what's cowardly? What's wise? What's strategic? We recognize life gets complicated sometimes, and I, I, I just want to tell you, if, if you feel that press, if you feel that pressure of, like, well, what, what should I do? I, I feel some, some dilemmas here. And I, I want to tell you, first of all, you should not go it alone. You should... Ask the Lord. That's why James 1, five would say, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, and God will give generously. He's not going to keep anything back. But I also want to say, you've got church friends and a church family to invite, and maybe you, over coffee or over lunch, you say, here's, here's the challenge right now. I need some perspective on this, because I really don't know if I'm doing the right thing or the wrong thing, or the wise thing or a foolish thing. Sometimes with distance, I mean, we have, I don't know what, 2,800 years, it's easy to go, well, you just ought to trust God. Obadiah, do the right thing. God will take care of the rest. And all that sounds real good until it's you right in the situation going, but I don't know the end of the story. So let's ask God who gives generally, ge- generously. As I was reading this story, it did remind me of something. So we got two, two characters who fear God, don't we? You have Elijah. We have Obadiah. And Elijah is bold Kind of marches into the king's presence and says, This is what's going on. And we have Obadiah who's discreet and quiet. Which one really fears God in this in this scripture? Well, they both do. It's just helpful for me to remember that those who fear the Lord, those who walk with God, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Because there's times you look at a person like Elijah and you go, My goodness, that person is so bold have so much courage. They're not afraid of anything. And if it means that, like, I don't think I could ever get to that place. I don't think my personality, even how I'm wired, my background, I don't think I I could ever do that. And, And then you get another person like Obadiah. God uses lots of different people for his glory. I'm confident. I'm confident God can use you. I know at least a certain group of people that really appreciated how God used Obadiah. And that's the people that he spared their lives. I think they would have said, I'm so glad God had Obadiah exactly where he was. I'm so glad that he was in that place of influence. I'm so glad that as difficult as it must have been to wake up in the morning and say, I go to work for King Ahab, but I fear the Lord. I'm so grateful there was someone willing to navigate that, navigate those waters. Let's continue reading. Let's walk through this text and ask the Lord to speak to us as this new character Obadiah has come on the scene. It says in verse 5, Ahab says to Obadiah, remember time of famine, let's go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we can find grass. Maybe we can save the horses and mules and not lose some of the animals. It's It's a twisted time where God's prophets are being killed, but let's make sure no mule dies today on our watch. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. And Ahab goes in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. Make sure you take note of the fact that Ahab is the king, King Ahab, but he's been reduced to like almost an errand boy here. We're playing hide and seek with animals. Obadiah, you got, don't you think the king had... Like a hundred people that could be doing this? He just kind of snap his fingers and they go this way and they go that way. But we got the king out there looking around trees trying to find animals. Again, it's, it shows you how weak Ahab is even though he's the king. And Obadiah is going to get put in a position where he has to make a decision. Look at verse 7. So Ahab and Obadiah split up. Obadiah was on the way. And behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said... Is it you, my Lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your Lord. Behold, Elijah is here. Obadiah had done a lot for the Lord, but he's going to protest this. Ah, There's there's a problem with what you just asked me to do, Elijah. Look at what he says in verse 9. Obadiah says, How have I sinned? What did I do wrong to deserve this? How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? You see, as the Lord your God lives, there's no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. Elijah, Ahab's trying to find you. And and when they would say, Elijah's not here, he he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you're just telling me, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. Do you see the questions? I mean, for the second chapter in a row, Elijah is getting asked the question like, what did I do wrong that you showed up in my life? What did I do wrong? Do you realize the position you're going to put me in? Are you trying to s- s- sign my, my death sentence here? Everyone's looking for you. The rulers are, of the country are looking at you. You are a marked man, and I'm just going to waltz back in and say, oh, Elijah's here. And Elijah's name even means, and some have pointed this out, Elijah's name means my Lord is God. And so you're going to have me just walk in and say that, yeah, my God is the one true Lord and he's here. You realize what position you're putting me in. And Obadiah is not finished expressing his concerns. Look at verse 12. And as soon as I've gone from you, the spirit of the Lord, this is what's going to happen. The Spirit of the Lord is going to carry you, and I know not where the Spirit's going to take you. And so, yeah, when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he'll kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Elijah, you're going to pull a disappearing act. And you're going to say, oh, it was the Spirit of the Lord. But that doesn't help me much in front of Ahab. You're going to say the Spirit did it. But I'm not going to be able to say, I saw him and he's right there. Do you realize what a position you're putting me in? Even if I say it's the Holy Spirit. I think what we have with Obadiah is a faithful prophet with a lot of understandable fears. I think it's a legitimate concern. So, again, 2,800 years, we would tell him, Nothing to worry about. You're all right. Just Go do what God tells you to do. And they go, but I think Obadiah is shaken. Notice what, notice he keeps on like in his protest here, verse 13, like, has it not been told my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? I don't know if you're aware of this, Elijah. I want to make sure you're aware. I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave. And I fed them with bread and water. Like all that, like serve the Lord stuff, I've done that. I've risked a lot. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. Haven't I done my part? Have you ever been in, in a place, have you ever been in a place where you're like losing the argument, where you don't sense your logic is convincing, and so you just find yourself repeating it? Maybe a little bit more, yeah, more volume, like, well, I'm trying to say, I don't think if you, I don't, I don't know that you heard the first thing I said. Oh, they heard it. But let me say it for the 10th time. I really don't want to do this and there's a good reason. See, I don't know if you picked up like I really fear the Lord and I've kind of, I've already done my part anyway. I've helped out and I don't know if you caught I fear the Lord and I, I, did you hear he'll kill me? I don't know if I stressed that enough. Like I can't, I can't do this. So you hear all the protests and then Elijah says, Elijah actually takes an oath. He says, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. What does it say? In verse 16, Obadiah does it. He goes to meet Ahab and tells him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. There's promise and obedience, but Obadiah is stretched. Again, this story would make complete sense if Elijah just met Ahab at the beginning. But we go through this detour with Obadiah. and I want us to take away some things from this detour. Because I think just like Obadiah, you and I will have some moments where it's count the cost moments. Where we will really have to count the cost. Jesus will bring his disciples to a place where they have to stare down some things and ask and answer some hard questions about where they are with him. Jesus will do this, the Lord will take us to these places. Whether it's in scripture like the rich young ruler who had to look at like, do I really want to follow Jesus, but I got all this stuff. Or Matthew has a a seat as a a chief tax collector and can kind of decide what he wants to do. And Jesus says, follow me. Or Andrew and Peter and James and John who kind of run in the family business and Jesus says, come follow me. They are going to have count the cost moments. Or Or the woman at the well who... Has to face her past, or Nicodemus, who has to decide what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Or even Martha at the tomb of Lazarus, where Jesus says, Do you believe it? Do you believe me? As I look at it, I I think, now honestly, if I kind of stand over to the side and say, try to sympathize with Obadiah, I think he's got some legitimate concerns. I think he had some reasons. I think he had some fair-minded justifications why this may not be the best path forward for him. I think he could have talked nuances and complexities all day long, and I think it would have been nod my head, said, it's complicated. I agree with you. And Jesus said to count the cause before taking up his cross. Have you done that? Do you do that? Or there are seasons of life where it, it, it begins to cost you something. Where something could come between you and the Lord and you have to decide. In a moment, you have to decide, like, am I willing to let that do that? I know what the Lord wants me to do. I'm not sure in this moment I'm really that excited about doing it. Hebrews 11 gives us every indication that our walk with him will cause us to be stretched. I wonder what this will mean for you. I wonder what it'll mean for you over the holidays. Will there be a time? I don't know. Will there be a time where it may actually cost you that you have an allegiance to the Lord? Or maybe it won't come over the holidays. Maybe it'll be next semester. And maybe it'll come with no warning. There'll be a time where maybe you're, you're in a hall or maybe you're at work or you're having a conversation and you realize this is it. If I choose this path, it's, it's going to hurt. It's going to cost me something. I wonder if it'll be in the remainder of this year or, or I wonder if it'll be next year. I wonder if it'll be a big thing where like it's just, you know, big lights blinking saying this is the moment. Are you going to choose this day to serve God or just do what you want to do? Or I wonder if it's going to be a thousand little small things, a little compromise here. Setting down your conscience there. Nah, I, I, I'm, I'm going to go ahead, I'm going to go ahead, I'm going to go ahead. What's, what's extra hard is when you feel like I've proven myself to the Lord and he's asking for more. That's exactly what Obadiah's dilemma is. I've proven myself. I, I tried to save the prophets. But now I'm being called to take another step of obedience. What's hard is when your decision is going to mean you may have one or two or five less friends. And that group that, like, everybody knows are the cool kids, there's always the cool kids everywhere. You never outgrow the cool kids. And you know by doing this, I'm going to be outside that. It's going to cost me. It's going to have some social capital, some relationship capital. It's going to mean I don't have the approval of everybody. It's, it's like when everybody politely nods and I say, I just can't. It may, it may cost money. It may cost future or... Or it may take a whole different tack. So I, I, can, I can imagine these scenarios where, like, you've got to choose Jesus over this. But sometimes it, the, the struggle is much more subtle. It's right in our hearts where God is calling us to forgive, and we don't want to. And we know he wants us to. And it's just easier to be bitter. Or God is calling us to be patient, and we don't want to be patient. That's the last thing we want to hear. And God says, wait, trust. And in that moment, which, which road are you going to go down? Or, or, or maybe it's envy that the Lord is working on you and you, you want this and you want that and you want this. And it should be mine. I, I should have it. And you're jealous over this person and jealous over that. And, and God's shown you that. And pressed on your heart, the Holy Spirit of God is pressed on your heart to be content. And you have a choice to make. Or maybe it's your lack of self-control, or your speech, or your judgmentalism, or your pride, or your selfishness, or we could just go on and on and on, where the Lord brings us at at times, and sometimes it doesn't feel like it's it's earth-shattering, it just feels like that small thing where, you know what, I I don't want to forgive, and I am going to hold on to my bitterness. I I don't want to live without this particular comfort. I'm going to go ahead and and make myself happy. I I don't want to go this way. I, I want to think of myself in this way. So, Lord, I hear you, but I... I, I'm going to do my own thing. And in those moments, we make a decision, don't we? I pray, I pray that you have the kind of courage, even if it is isn't immediate, even if you like protest a little bit, like Obadiah did. I hope you, and I hope I have the courage to go. Whatever the cost, I'm going to follow the Lord. But I will say this. I want to be r- realistic and honest. We can summon all the courage we want. Like you can determine, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to serve the Lord. I'm going to be on his team. I'm going to identify with him. Whatever the cost, you can have all the willpower in, in, in the world. And you can still walk into the heat of the battle and fail, and fail miserably. What, what you're going to need is not just all the willpower and determination you have. You're going to need something more than your own spiritual toughness. You see there's there's only one we read about in scripture and really only one in all of history who had the courage and determination to always obey the father perfectly 100% of the time. And that's Jesus Christ. So as much as I, I, I want to be obedient and faithful every single time, only one person has done that and that's Jesus. And, and the good news about who Jesus is, is that that life he lived of perfect obedience was in our place for us. And he died to pay for sins, not his own. He died to pay for the for the times of rebellion, the times of disobedience, the times where I don't like, run it up the flagpole that I am a, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and him only. The time where I make the compromises, he died for those. Jesus didn't die for those that are perfect. And those who are sick, they're not the ones who need a doctor. And those who are about a thousand in the righteousness department, yeah, those are the people that don't need a savior. But when we take scripture for the truth that it is, we recognize all have sinned. All have sinned all have sin. all fall short of God's glory. And Jesus dealt with that very sin by his sacrifice on the cross. So the good news that this church has to offer is not to tell you to behave, get in line, and tough it out. That actually wouldn't be good news because you can't live, live that way permanently. Neither can I. The good news is that you can believe and receive. You can believe what Christ has done and receive his gift of forgiveness. And if God's at work in your heart, you need to talk to someone. I, I pray you'll do that before you leave today. About what it means to have that relationship with Christ. So when we know that Jesus has done a work on us and for us, then we go back to these same... Moments of obedience where we are called on to follow him and not turn our back. We go back to those with something different inside of us and that is we have the work of Christ that assures us. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us. We've been born again. We have new desires. We have new power that we did not have before Christ came into our lives. We go back to those and we hear the Lord say forsake all and trust me. We say in our own strength we could not but in your strength, we can. We hear the Lord say, walk wisely in this world. Be holy, for I am holy. And we say, in our own strength, all the willpower in the world, we couldn't do that. But in God's strength, we can walk holy. We hear Jesus say, you deny yourself. You deny yourself. You take up your cross. You follow me. You follow me. And we say, in our own strength. all oh, that be impossible. Because we've been born again, we have a new life. We can He's given us the spirit and called us to follow. This morning, what I'd like to do is close our time here. In a moment, we'll sing, but I'd like to close our time praying the Lord would give us courage to obey, just like I obey, that as we see God preparing, writing a story that maybe we don't know all the details, that God would give us grace and strength in the moment to be faithful to him. Can I pray, and then we'll sing. Oh Lord, we thank you for your patience and your grace and your kindness. I thank you that you not only have told us what pleases you, but then you've also given us the ability to do it. We pray by by the working of your Holy Spirit inside us that we would have a fresh desire for obedience. Help us as we even help one another walk faithful. I pray, uh, even specifically, I think of all the students in this room that walking for you is hard in whatever context they find themselves. And loving you with all their heart and all their mind and all their soul and all their strength may cost them something tomorrow. It may mean there are things they don't get invited to and friends that seem to ostracize that. Oh God, give grace. But I don't just pray that for our students. I pray that for every person that names the name of Christ. Give us us the courage and the strength and the grace to be holy, as you're holy. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.